in the Christian life for a lot of years, you sound like you're probably hearing, or it sounds like you're probably hearing the same thing over and over again. Well, that's the Lord's work. That's the Lord's mind. He knows that we need to hear things over and over again, all with a little bit different flavor. You know, the Gospels come to us with just a little bit different message, not different message in the Gospel, but a little bit different angle for who Jesus is. And so listen attentively as the Lord teaches us all these things. But these are certainly foundational. And so as you can imagine, uh, Jesus now having gone onto the mountainside or the hillside, however you want to say it, the Lord calls it a mountain, at least in the English translation. And I can only imagine how different that scene must have been, can't you? Compared to what we're doing today. I mean, we have this nice building with pews and we play musical instruments and we have a format to the service and on and on it goes, the carpeting and all that kind of stuff. But can you imagine just sitting on the hillside as Jesus just begins to teach, just begins to teach and what that must have been like? You know, I don't see anything in the text that says that there were the trumpeters and the guitarists and the piano and didn't look like there was any practice by the worship team and... uh, Jesus just began to teach because what was most important was for the people to hear and to listen. So we never want to get distracted by anything. We want to use everything as edification so we're hearing what the Lord is saying to us. The title today is Happy Are the Humble. Happy Are the Humble. So let's look at the text this morning in Matthew 5 beginning in verse 1. And our text specifically will be verse 3. So stand with me as we read in honor of the word of the Lord. We covered verses 1 and 2 last time, but we want to look at verse 3, but I want to reiterate a couple points from verse 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, you may be seated. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, At first glance, it really doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that that is a very different statement about how to be happy than what the world may teach us about how to be happy. Each of us want to be happy, don't we? I mean, we live our lives trying to make ourselves happy. We buy things, we go places, we do things, we sell stuff, whatever, to make ourselves happy. But we get to Jesus' statement now right from the beginning. And he says, if you really want to be happy, here's how you're going to accomplish that. So today's going to be very practical as I try to give you some practical points here from this particular sermon. The world has its own idea of what it means to be happy. I was looking at an article this morning from Dr. Travis Bradbury, Ph.D. Dr. Bradbury is an award-winning co-author of Emotional Intelligence 2.0 and the co-founder of Talent Smart the world's leading provider of emotional, intelligent tests and training serving more than 75% of Fortune 500 companies. His best-selling books have been translated into 25 languages and are available in more than 150 countries. Praise the Lord. All right? You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that's what I'm asking. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I don't know anything about this man. I'm sure he's a fun individual. But what he did is he wrote an article titled The 11 Habits of Truly Happy People. Okay, so just mark this down, and you will be happy. Isn't that exciting? Number one, create your own happiness. <laughs> Don't sit back and wait for it. And he talks about that just a little bit. Go out and conquer it yourself. Just say, I am going to be happy. 
surround yourself with the right people. And that certainly makes sense, right? And a lot of these things, in fact, are going to make sense to us. Get enough sleep. That's number three. That's important. Live in the moment. Don't worry about the past or the future. And again, we could say that we would agree with some of these. Learn to love yourself. Important point. Appreciate what you have, certainly. Exercise. Forgive. What would you say? He says, but don't forget. Okay? Now, now I think what he means by that is, certainly we need to forgive, but we also need to grow in wisdom. And that makes sense, right? We don't want to just be run over by the same truck every time. That doesn't make sense. Number nine, get in touch with your feelings. Make sure that your feelings are not dictating to you. Number ten, concentrate on what you can control. In other words, there's only so much you can do, so make sure that you're not trying to do everybody else's job. And number eleven, have a growth mindset. That's very serious, and I'm sure he's very serious about this, and they really are good points. Uh, But that's the world's mind on how we are to achieve happiness. That's not what Jesus says. Notice back in verse 3 again, the Lord says, the people who are truly happy are the humble. The people who are humble, those who are, and we could use this word, I think, selfless. People who are humble. In other words, the most exalted people. You want to know who's going to be in the kingdom? The most exalted people in the kingdom, number one, will be the humble. That's who will be there. Those will be the people in the front and center, which is the lowest in the world's evaluation of success, isn't it? That's not what the world says. I didn't see that in in the doctor's list there. Be humble and you'll be happy. Now, maybe there's a part two because he does write for 2.0 or whatever that means. Now, listen, also, it's important for us to understand that none of these beatitudes are suggestions. These are not just some doctor saying, hey, do this. This is the Lord himself saying, by commandment, the humble are the happy ones. Now get this, because this is our Lord saying this. If we want to know how to be happy, the Lord is saying, you need to be humble. You need to be humble people. If you really want happiness, get rid of what the world is telling you about how to be happy, unless there's some wisdom in that what the world says, and do what I'm telling you to do. Listen to the Lord of the happiness. If you try to find happiness in any other way, it's not going to work. It just won't happen. You won't find it. In fact, Solomon found that out. If we read the book of Ecclesiastes, very clear. Solomon was the richest man in the world. We don't know how much wealth he had necessarily, but he had a lot. He had everything that the world could buy. He was able to go anywhere, do anything, have anything command anything, take anything. I mean, there was nobody who was in charge of Solomon other than God himself. At the end of Ecclesiastes, he writes the conclusion, when you've had everything and you're trying to find happiness, that's my paraphrase, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. That's really what's important for everybody. That's what it comes down to. And that was written long before Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus kind of tags on this and says, Look, if you want to have happiness, this world can't offer that to you. Everything in this life is going to be temporary. Everything. Now, there's nothing in this sinful, cursed world that's going to achieve for you or for me anything of lasting value. Not mu- music. You think about some of the subjects that people have tried to identify themselves with. Not the latest craze out there. It's not about a movie. It's not about whatever book you might have. It's not about even relationships. 
None of that is going to make you happy. If you're looking for happiness on your own outside of God's word, listen carefully, you're not going to find it. It's just not going to be there. Now, each of us, I'm sure, have had at some point in our lives that inner compelling feeling of what do I need to do to just really be content in this life, to be happy. Well, the Lord is telling us, if you want to be happy, it's got to start with humility. So let's talk about that some more. If you write this down, you got to be happy. you got to be humble people. Your changed heart is what the Lord is really talking about. That's where it all has to begin to make you happy. As you follow Jesus, making him number one. I had an interesting text this week from a guy that I've known for some time now who's been struggling with various things in his life. And I wasn't sure who it was until I, because you know how sometimes your text will come in, it's just the phone number there. Uh, I had to scroll backwards to just see who it was. But the message was simply this. He said, um, I am lost and I can't find my way. That was his message. And so I responded back to him an answer that said, Jesus is the answer. And I said, I don't mean to sound simplistic, but giving, oh, there we go. Okay, you can hear me now. But giving your heart fully to him changes everything. It's letting go and admitting you're a sinner who deserves eternal punishment then turning your life over to Jesus because he paid the price of your sin. God will forgive you and give you a new spirit and a new heart. Nothing will be better until you do that. That doesn't mean everything will be fixed, but your heart and mind will have peace through life. And the best part is you spend eternity one day with him in perfect peace. And it's all free. Just believe from your heart, not just your head. That's the first step. I just wanted to reiterate to you what I had responded to him with, but that was his message. I'm lost, and I really can't find my way. It's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? What he was saying was, I don't have any happiness. I can't find it. And the reality is, beloved, we're not going to find it in this world. It has to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is, what we learned last time, is there has to be an inner change. This is all about the heart. Remember that from last time? There has to be an inner heart change. So let's now talk about what Jesus is really saying here specifically. What does he mean by poor in spirit? Well, the word poor means to shrink or to cower or to cringe. Okay? That's the idea. Like a person crouching or cornering behind something or somebody who's begging on a street without the ability to provide for themselves. It's that kind of an idea. Completely dependent on others for their sustenance. No ability to provide for themselves. That's the wording that the Lord is using here in the original language. Hiding his or her face because he or she is ashamed to be recognized. You see that picture there? That's a great state of humility. It's an internally poor heart. Now, I mentioned last week the Essenes. That was a group of religious believers that we actually gain a lot of knowledge from scripturally. Uh, But they were people who believed that it was never right to have anything materially. That the only way to true spirituality was to forfeit everything that the world has and go live basically in a cave, which is exactly what many of them did. They denied everything that was material in order to have what they thought would gain them happiness or true spirituality. But that's not what the Lord is talking about here. And unfortunately, many Christians, by the way, have tried to do the same thing. They often will think that if I just get rid of a bunch of stuff and I don't have much materially in this life, then I'm going to be a lot more happy. Well, that's certainly true, especially when you try to go fix your lawnmower and carburetor's clogged up and, you know, you just can't get the thing working. And you think, why do I have all this stuff? Because at one point we thought it was going to make us happy. 
It's going to make us better. So people have thought, well, if I just get rid of all my stuff, then I'm going to be a lot more happy. Well, you may be less busy. That's certainly true. But the human heart is always looking for something to make it internally happy. And the things of this life are just not going to do it. So to be poor in the spirit or poor in spirit is to see oneself in the presence of God as lost, hopeless, helpless without him, completely dependent on God for everything. That's what the Lord is saying. To be poor in spirit means you understand that you are without hope, without the Lord himself. So every true believer then is happy when they see themselves as spiritually destitute, without any ability, completely depending on God. So the whole hope is to beg for God, beg God for mercy and grace because you see yourself as without, understanding that there is no spiritual merit that I can gain on my own, understanding that there's no spiritual reward that I can gain on my own, all pride is gone, all self-assurance is gone, and I stand empty-handed before God. And Jesus clarifies that when he says, blessed are the poor, what? In spirit. You see how Jesus is attacking the spiritual part there, which is what he's always doing. The spirit is the key. The spirit is the person who we really are. Each of you who are sitting in the pews right now are not those fleshly bodies. That's not who you are. That's just how we identify with each other. Who you are is in your heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not the external, but the internal. And this is what the Lord spoke about in other places, like Isaiah 66 too. The Lord says, This one I will look to him who is humble and contrite in spirit. Notice this, though. Who trembles at my word. Boy, what a message from Isaiah. The psalmist in Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, we're told he, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. You can understand the mind of the people that Jesus is talking about here. And he tells this parable, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector right there, and points him out. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, it's a beautiful picture here, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. Imagine that picture. Unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And there are other examples biblically too. We think about Moses and when he was first called from the burning bush. Remember God brings him up on the mountain there and he calls out to him in Exodus 3. The Lord says, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. 
But listen to Moses' response. Moses is one of my favorite biblical characters because he just shows such humanity that we can identify with. Who am I, Moses says, that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I remember at that point, Moses had been kicked out of Egypt. He had served uh, as a shepherd for 40 years by this time now before the Lord even reaches back to use him. And so Moses, a very broken man, spiritually, says, Lord, what do you mean? Can you really use somebody like me? In Exodus 4.10, he'll go on and say, Moses said to the Lord, after the Lord brings him through several things that he wants him to be encouraged by, Moses still gets to the end of it all and says, please, Lord, I've never even been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. In other words, he's trying to make excuses for the Lord, or to the Lord, saying, hey, you got the wrong guy. Because he felt this, I believe, this crushed spirit about him. And I think that's why the Lord chose him, honestly. Because he knew Moses was finally at a place where God was able to be, would be able to use him. Because his heart was changed. He was no longer that prince of Egypt. God had removed everything from him that was important in the world system. And now the only thing he had left was a shepherd's staff and the heart of a shepherd. And so God was able to take him and really change the world because of that broken heart. And even, even then we have David, who after his sin with Bathsheba, understanding the great destruction that he had caused in Psalm 51, says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Imagine a man who has committed what he did, not only adultery but murder by killing Bathsheba's husband. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Boy, what a picture. If we could just pause on David for a minute, we could ask ourselves the same question. Is our sin ever before us? The truly humble are those who identify with just what David is saying there, that I see my sin. Lord, it's ever before you. But not just an intellectual awareness, but an awareness that says, Lord, I know that I have nothing to give to you. I have nothing to offer anything in this world or anything spiritually for that matter. Paul said the same thing of himself basically in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present. In other words, I have the desire, but the doing of good is not He would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That was the heart of God's people who truly saw who God was and who they are. Beloved, listen. Neither you nor I will ever be truly happy in this life until we have that kind of heart, until we see ourselves broken and destitute before the Lord. We'll never need God until we see ourselves that way. It's very contrary to what the world teaches, isn't it? Very different. Very, very different from what the world teaches. But this is the standard that the Lord lays out in his very first message in point number one. As he's standing there looking over the people of Israel and these multitudes of people following him, certainly wanting him to say, okay, guys, pick up your swords and your axes and we're going to go conquer Rome. No, it's not what he said. He says, if you want to be great, if you want to be happy, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to humble yourself. Far different message. 
And where people mess up is when they try to follow God in their own way, doing what they can do out of their own power, a way that they can fulfill. And that's where traditions really come from. Traditions are not bad, certainly. We have lots of traditions, but traditions come from man trying to create his own way and trying to figure out his own plan for life, which which typically is watering down God's word, changing it into something that has meaning on a human level and becomes nothing but sin, really. Which is exactly why Jesus said this in Mark 7, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. The Lord nails it every time, doesn't he? Every time. You strive for what you understand and what you think is important in this life, when in reality all you need to do is step back and let go of yourself and trust the Lord and his word. And this is what we're losing in many ways today, even among church people, is the desire to just simply hold to the biblical authority of his word. And if we will do that, if we will hold to the biblical authority of his word, we will be those people that understand what true happiness is. But we've got to follow him, amen? We've got to follow the Lord or we will get lost ourselves. So what God is looking for, those who are unworthy and they know they're unworthy, they acknowledge that they're unworthy, they're unable to keep his holy standards. People who come as poor beggars, willing to deny themselves and follow him through his power and his will. One commentator wrote this whole thought like this. He said, pride has no part in Christ's kingdom. And until a person surrenders pride, he cannot enter the kingdom. The door into his kingdom is low, and no one who stands tall will ever go through it. We cannot be filled until we are empty. We cannot be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. We cannot live until we admit we are dead. We might as well expect fruit to grow without a tree as to expect the other graces of the Christian life to grow without humility. We cannot begin the Christian life without humility and we cannot live the Christian life with pride. Until a soul is humbled, until the inner person is poor in spirit, Christ can never become dear because he is obscured by self. Until one knows how helpless, worthless, and sinful he is in himself, he can never see how mighty, worthy, and glorious Christ is in himself. Until one sees how doomed he is, he cannot see what a redeemer the Lord is. Until one sees his own poverty, he cannot see God's riches. Only when one admits to his own deadness can Christ give him his life. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Strong words. Strong words from the Lord. And so... What we're hearing again is that humility becomes the first spiritual trait or mark of a true believer. You want to be a true believer? Humility has to be the number one characteristic. The number one characteristic. Because everything in the kingdom is founded upon humility. And that's why Jesus starts right here. In other words, he's saying, listen, you will never get to step number two in the kingdom unless you start here with humility bowing before my throne in your heart and acknowledging that I am not God. I don't have every answer. I don't have the right way. I must trust in who you are. 
So that's the Lord's message. Now let's get some, to some practical thoughts here, and that would be how do we then achieve this humility? Okay, how do we really do that? And then I want to talk about as we close, how are we going to know when we're growing in humility? So how do we achieve humility? If it's so deeply ingrained with each of us to be so prideful, how do we know when we are becoming humble and how do we maintain it? What does this look like? Well, number one, you can write these down if you like, not by putting ourselves down. Now listen to what I'm saying here. This is not about living in a perpetual state of depression. That's not what the Lord is teaching here. He is not saying we are to have the woe is me attitude. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. Right? You heard the little jingle. Guess I'll go eat worms. Right? Bite their heads off. Right? You know how that goes? That's not what this is about. It's not the Eeyore syndrome. Oh, bother. It's not about that. Because... That kind of attitude, listen, that kind of attitude is really predicated upon pride. Depression in many ways that's perpetual, and I want to be very careful here because I'm not a doctor, but I understand spiritually, depression in a spiritual sense is often predicated upon pride. It will mask itself really in pride where it says, there's something so good about me, I've got to pretend like I'm so bad. I can't let go of how good I think I am unless I make it myself believe that I'm really bad. Well, a person who really understands who Christ is doesn't need to be told over and over again how bad they are. They just see it because they see Jesus high and lifted up. So that's not what this is. True humility humility is not thinking about yourself at all. That's what real humility is. It's that I'm not even a part of the conversation. I don't come to my mind when I think about humility. Instead, I focus on what the Lord has said and who he is. My whole hope is that I understand that I am a sinner and I need a changed heart. I accept that and I surrender to him and give control over to him. He is the driver of my life. I'm not the focal point. We have a responsibility to cooperate with God in everything and humble ourselves. And we do that by what God has said. Listen to John 15. As a branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, Jesus says, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is telling us straight up, listen, I have to be the source. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And here's the clinch of it all. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Can we say that again? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what do you think Jesus meant right there? He meant just what he said. Now, we want to qualify Jesus here a little bit. And we want to say, there's some things that I can do. But to even have that thought is to try to come up with a way to make self have some value. Now, yes, it's true. We can pick up a book. We can pick up a shovel. We can drive a car. We can do those things. But it's still not true that we're not doing it without Jesus. Because who is it that holds all things together according to Colossians chapter 2? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He holds the very fabric of our physical body together. He holds the molecular structure together so that we can do what we do, that we think we're doing it. 
But even in the physical things, we have to acknowledge, Lord, without you, according to what your word says, which is the authority for my life, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. So, for everybody who humbles themselves, they're the happy ones. Those are the happy ones. Why? Because they don't think about themselves. They're just people that don't think about themselves. They focus on who Jesus is. Their constant thinking is, what do you want, Lord? What is best here, Lord? What do you say, Lord? What do you think, Lord? How am I, Lord? Whatever you want, Lord. You see the difference? Whatever it is you want. Now, secondly, we achieve humility by getting rid of everything that feeds our pride. That should be pretty self-evident. If pride is the number one problem, then we have to get rid of it. Whatever causes us to focus on ourselves, we need to get rid of it. Let me give you some examples. Compliments. Praises. People who want to make us popular. Or when we want to be noticed, when we want to be recognized. All of those things are good in and of themselves in their own way. But our sinfulness can grab them and make it a prideful thing. Right? I mean, the human heart wants to be recognized. That's our big problem. We can't stand it when somebody's recognized over us. Whether it's for a job or it's a relationship, you name the category, that's the innate problem with the sinful nature. It wants to be recognized. So the Lord starts with, you got to get rid of that. You got to let go of that. And he gives us many illustrations in Scripture about what will happen to those people who listen to their sinful pride that wants to elevate itself. Number one would be Galatians 5, and I'm not going to take time to read it, but it's where the Lord talks about the works of the flesh. And he says, these are the people that will not be a part of my kingdom. The humble will be a part of my kingdom. Now, at the same time, let's be careful here. It's not wrong to receive some accolade for something that's very encouraging at times and we should do that we're to edify one another to good works right and we use words to do such a thing it's not wrong to be appreciated or to hear somebody say good job never forget one of my professors in school was telling us a story about how he went to a young lady in a church service or right after the church service she had sung this beautiful solo and he went to her and he says that was just so beautiful it just really moved my heart boy, you just really were used to the Lord. And she says, oh, no, no, no. I didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't me. It was all Jesus. And he said, well, we should invite Jesus to come back next time and say. So the point was, she was just not wanting to take any credit for it, and that was good. But his point was, listen, it's okay to just say thank you. I mean, sometimes people will think it's more holy to just say, oh, no, 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 I didn't have anything to do with this. Almost like they were just standing in the corner and just God did all this amazing work for them and they just were standing there like this. But that's not true, is it? I mean, we all have our own abilities and our gifts that God uses through us. So the best response is just simply to say thank you. Thank you for that compliment. I appreciate that. I'm glad it was meaningful to you. But some people have gone either of the two directions. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging any of those things. In fact, let me give you a couple of scripture verses here to help. Proverbs 27, 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. That's a good one to teach kids. Right? What the Lord is, is telling us here is pretty self-explanatory. Don't boast about yourself. But it's okay if somebody says something about what you've done. 
That's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. 2 Corinthians 12, 11, I've become foolish, Paul says. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. Did you hear that? I should have been commended by you. You should have said something. You should be thankful for the work that the Lord has been working through me. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So Paul saw himself as nothing, but he was understanding that it's okay to take an appreciative uh, statement at some point. What's wrong is, beloved, is when we look for it, right? And we've had that situation at times where people would get their feathers a little ruffled because nobody thanked them. Now, that's a problem. We don't need to be thanked internally. It's nice to hear, and we should do it on our own free will for our brother or our sister, right? But we shouldn't do something just because we want somebody to thank us for something. That's when it becomes wrong, like when we need it or we crave it. All right, here's a third thing. Ask God to make you humble. Now, I'll warn you, that's a tough thing because God has a way of honoring that. If his first point of entering into the kingdom is to humble, be humble people, then don't think for a second God doesn't do what's necessary in order to bring about humility in our sinful lives. In fact, listen to how Paul spoke about himself and what he said about God in 2 Corinthians 12. And some people have differed on whether Paul's talking about himself here because he says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ, most believe he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or of the body, I don't know, God knows. In other words, I don't know whether this was a vision or I was caught up, but he says I was, the man was caught up to the third heaven and I know how, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Such a humble man. But look at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. What's Paul saying? God had given him an incredible vision of heaven. And he knew, God knew, that if he didn't cause Paul to remain humble, he would have a tendency to elevate himself. We do that. Look what I saw. You didn't see it. I saw it. Right? We argue about that kind of stuff. You didn't say that. I said it. You know, we have that kind of situation all the time. Oh, yeah, right. That's what I said, all right. And then we just go on and on about this stuff. So Paul could have elevated himself, but look at the rest of this in beginning in verse 8. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. But notice how he qualifies this, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... That's when I'm strong. Such a different mind, isn't it? 
What a different mind from the human mind. But this is the mind of the Lord. All right, so that's some about humility. Let's talk in this closing minutes here how to know we are truly humble. You say, well, Pastor, that's going to be a little tough because you told me I'm not supposed to think about myself at all. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I know you. And you think about yourself because I think about myself. But that's number one. How do I know? Because I stop being preoccupied with me. That's number one. I stop being preoccupied with me. Now, we just focused on Jesus and what he wants. And so you can check your own heart with a couple practical things here by asking a few questions such as this. If you really need some help with whether you're thinking about yourself a lot or not, here are a couple things that I jotted down, which is what does your mind dwell on during the day? Or maybe we should change that word to who or to whom does your mind dwell on? Is your mind dwelling on me and my desires and my needs and wants or is it on God? It's a good test. You should write it down, in fact. We should all take this challenge and write down as much as we can during the day, if nothing else, a mental note on our phones. How many times we catch ourselves thinking about ourselves? You want to do that for next week? I don't want to do that for next week. Lest I be a castaway. How about this? What do I do with my downtime? Is my mind focused on living for God or for me? In other words, when I'm not being under the crunch of work and school and everything else, where's my mind? Is it just on what I want or is it one on the Lord, what the Lord wants? When I'm in a crowd, who am I thinking about? Now, where am I going with that? When I'm in a crowd, who am I thinking about? Who do we typically try to impress when we're in a crowd? Other people, right? Well, we do that because we're thinking about ourselves. We want to know how everybody else is thinking about us. When I am in a conversation with someone, who am I thinking about? You ever had a conversation with somebody and you just couldn't finish your conversation because they were already starting the conversation back? I mean, it was so much about what they were doing and talking about that you never had a chance to even respond. When I'm asked to do something I don't really want to do, what is my normal response? Hmm. How about this one? I like this one. How important is my mirror and why am I standing in front of it? I mean, can we just not close the book and go home? I mean, why do we even have mirrors? I know, I know. Because it's much more godly to make sure somebody else doesn't have to look at what you're looking at, right? We want to make sure that we look pleasing to other people. And there's a sense of importance. You know, I'm being silly here a little bit. There's certainly a sense of importance with all of that. But do you get the point? The mirror is really a a tool of vanity, isn't it? The clothes we wear, the places we go, how we shop, what we drive, where we live, all of that is so vain because we're really more focused on ourselves. Let's take another angle at this and think about the church This gets a little bit more personal. We all want the church to grow because that's what the Lord has said. He came to build his church, and we want to be a part of that. But when it comes to thinking about ourselves, when we're asked to do something to help it grow, 
What's our response? Right? We say, yeah, I want this church to grow. I mean, that's what the Lord wants. I want that certainly too, but why'd you have to ask me to do that? Kind of interrupts my day. You You see the responses we often come back with? I don't want to do that, or I won't do that, or surely somebody will pick that up, but ooh, don't ask me to do that. Why? Because I'm thinking about me. I'm not really thinking about what God wants. Well, that's all just pride, beloved, because we're more focused on ourselves. See the point? It doesn't take long when you start thinking about this. Or how about when we need, when we know we need to speak to someone about their salvation? How do we respond? It's kind of hard for the church to grow if people don't hear about salvation, isn't it? I mean, we can grow in numbers. We can do three-ring circuses and flea circuses and all kinds of stuff, and people will come to see all of that, but the smoke and mirrors kind of thing. But really, the church grows because people give their life to Christ. Well, who's the avenue to get, help them to see all of that? It's us, right? What about showing Jesus in the workplace? Why don't, we do, why don't we do that? Well, same thing. We're preoccupied with ourselves. So, secondly, let's go on. Thomas Watson said, here's how we can know. We won't complain about our situation no matter how bad it is. That's good. We won't complain about our situation no matter how bad it is. And I don't know if about you, but my flesh loves to complain. It complains to me a lot. And I keep telling it, be quiet. But it keeps on complaining, and it complains because we think we deserve better, right? More money, more time, more energy, whatever it might be, bigger house, better car, better wife, better husband, better children. I don't need all this garbage. I deserve better. That's what the flesh says, right? But when we focus on what God has done, let's look at the different picture. When we get our eyes lifted up and get them off ourselves and we look at Jesus for what he's done for us, giving up his glorious throne to come for us? Really? Would you do that? You wouldn't come for your neighbor. Really? I mean, very few are the people who will give their life for somebody else. That's what the Lord says, right? Some have, praise the Lord, but most would not. Most people today drive down the road and somebody's on the side of the road and they turn the other way hoping that they don't have to stop that they're not going to be inconvenienced or maybe there's something dangerous in there or they're going to hurt me and that's all wise. But you see how it first comes back to me? I want to make sure I'm okay. But that's not a humble heart. And I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm just talking about humility. When people will say, well, life's not so bad. You know, I can figure all this out. But people who surrender to Christ live their lives in ministry. That's the people that we've watched over the years. And the disciples, the apostles, gave their life for Christ because they didn't think about themselves. They knew that it was a calling and that it was more important to follow Christ instead of following what they wanted. I really don't think Paul was excited about having his head cut off. I just don't think that was a good morning. And we're not told in the text other than Paul gave his life. Okay? Peter, when he was crucified upside down, I really don't think he wanted to do that. I don't think his flesh really wanted that. Do you? No, I don't think so. But he did it. Why? Because his eye was on Christ. 
He knew what Jesus had done for him. And he was willing to deny himself. And all the other apostles, for that matter, some months ago we talked about how they all their lives all ended. And think about the people who are persecuted now. Why do they go through that? Because they're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about the Lord and what the Lord has done. Here's the third thing, and we just got a few more and we'll be done. You will see your weaknesses more clearly than your strengths. When you're living a life of humility, all of a sudden your weaknesses will be elevated. Isn't that true? If you're seeing that now, if you're able to see much more clearly how you look in the same room beside Jesus, you're beginning to see how you look, really. A friend of mine told me this one time years ago. He said, growing in humility or the likeness of Christ is kind of like having a brand new pair of shoes that when it gets a mark on it, you all of a sudden see it really clearly. You know, the old sinful nature, in other words, gets marks all over it. It's kind of a mess. It's got mud and all kinds of junk on it. You don't even notice the marks anymore. But you buy a pair of brand new shoes and you wear them and you're like, oh, shoot, got a mark on them already. You see it immediately. Well, to grow in humility is like that. It's like seeing, I see Jesus so clearly now, I see my soul so clearly that I see all the marks. Everything is just highlighted. When you begin to see that, you're beginning to grow in humility because now you've got a measurement that you can do something with. Does that make sense? That's a good thing. We want to see more of the purity of Jesus and more of our marks because that tells me I need more of Jesus. The more marks I see, the more I know I need him. And fourthly, we will communicate more with God. In other words, our prayer life is going to go up. We're just going to want to communicate with him because we're going to realize that the less I have available to myself, the more I need him. So the only way I can get more from him and to be more for him is to communicate with him. I mean, it really works the other way around too, beloved. We just don't pray because we just don't see the need for Jesus. Hello? Right? I mean, can it just be that simple? We just struggle in prayer and communication with the Lord because we just haven't gotten to the place where he's really that critical to me. Not one of us would have a problem if this building were starting to catch on fire right now would have a problem calling 911. It'd just be easy, right? Because you would see the need. Well, prayer is the same way. Prayer is our lifeline. You've heard this many times before. When we see the need... So we would have a greater communication with him. Fifthly, let just have one more after this. We won't try to live in both worlds, flesh and spirit. In other words, we'll be moving more to the spiritual life. We won't play this game between what the world has to offer us and what the spirit has to offer us. Now again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have things. Some of the wealthiest men in the world were in the scriptures and used greatly of God. But they had it all in perspective. They understood that they could give it away and it wouldn't mean anything. And we battle that. We live in a very materialistic world. And we want the things of the flesh. But when we get to this place of really growing in our humility, we won't want to play both games. It's going to, you know, we're not going to laugh at the world's jokes anymore. 
We're not going to think that's cute and humorous and funny if it's something the world is doing and wants to make light of the things of the Lord or the light, light of people's lives. Or And God talks about this. I read this in the scriptures uh, from the scripture yesterday during the wedding. There's never to be coarse uh, jesting or foolish talk among ourselves. You see, that's what the Lord is saying there is that that's living the worldly life as well. You know, sometimes people as Christians, excuse me, <clears throat> they don't know how to balance those two. When they're in the world, they're like the world. When they're in the spirit or in the church, they're like the spirit. But James says that's a double that's a double-minded man. That's unstable. There's no real foundation like that. No, when we're really growing in humility, what Jesus says, that's the entrance into my kingdom, foundation number 1, you got to be humble, then we start gravitating towards the spiritual more and more and more. And then finally, We know we are spiritually humble when we live a life of praise to God and we thank him. 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, Paul says, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We live a life of praise. When you know that Jesus has paid the price for you, it's not hard to praise him, is it? It's really not. It's not hard to praise. It's not hard to thank him. When you've had some serious issue going on, have you ever had that time where you just said, Lord, if you just fix this, I'll thank you for it. And he fixed it, and you started thanking him more and more, and you remember every time that little situation comes up, you start thanking him again. That's the heart that the Lord wants us to live with. So very quickly, there's some points that kind of will help guide us a little bit. I hope you wrote those down uh, to help you to, Measure yourself as to am I growing in humility? The hardest one I think is going to stop to be stop thinking about ourselves so much. Now, I didn't say go home and rip your mirror off your wall. Okay? Some husband saying, Man, I was just planning on buying my wife a new mirror for Christmas too. That's okay. Buy her the mirror. And I tell you what, here's what you do you get one of those big drawings or make a big drawing of Jesus. And just paste it right on the mirror. And every time she stands in front of the mirror, she's going to see this beautiful picture of Jesus. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm going to put myself in the picture. And every time she sees me, she's going to just... Looks in the mirror, she's going to see me. No, don't do that. That wouldn't be good. All right. Now, Jesus concludes this particular one. Look what he says in verse 3. For theirs, who's theirs? The spiritually poor, the humble, is what? is the kingdom of God. Do you know what the kingdom is going to be like? It's going to be a bunch of humble people running around. Man, what a place. Can you imagine a heavenly realm that is filled with no one but people who think nothing about themselves? That's got to be heaven because it sure ain't here. Right? That's what Jesus says. That's what my kingdom is like. Born-again people are people who are humble because they know God has done everything and they have nothing. So if you want to be happy, James says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Listen, when you humble yourself, who's going to lift you up? The Lord's going to lift you up. That doesn't mean he's going to give you everything or have you do everything, but he will know you and you will know him. If you try to humble yourself, excuse me, if you try to lift yourself up, On your own, Luke 14, 
Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There you go. So the Lord simply says, okay, you want to be great? Great, go do it, and I'll bring you down. If you want me to humble you and lift you up, then open your heart to me and surrender, and you'll be a part of my kingdom as a humble person. Amen? Good stuff. All right, let's pray together. Father, so many of us have listened to message after message after message over the years and been so moved and so blessed by godly men who just deliver incredible, incredible messages. But as we listen to you, Father, in this message as you sat on the hillside, there's nothing to compare to it. Master, master teacher, and how your spirit just penetrates us and Lord, we want you to do that. We understand these things. We're all laughing inside a little bit because we know these things to be so true. We know how fleshly our self is. We know how much we battle ourselves and how much we want to lift up ourselves to others. It's just an incessant thing in this life. And Lord, we acknowledge to you that truth. And at least for this moment, for this fraction of time, We ask you to remember that we're but the dust of the ground and that we so need you. We so ever need you every day. And so, Lord, we would be like Paul and say, Lord, remove from us the thorns of our flesh. But at the same time, we hear you saying that you will give us the grace that's necessary to deal with the problem. So thank you, Lord, that you do that. Thank you that you put up with us. I thank you that you are willing to come in spite of us, in spite of our sin. Lord, I pray that as your spirit works in our hearts this morning, from the youngest to the oldest, that you would cause us to walk in true humility, not manufactured, not self-made, but Lord, in the humility that your spirit gives to us. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for teaching us. Now, Lord, we would not ask that you would just teach, but that you would change us. And that we would walk from this place having fully surrendered to you as our Lord and our Savior. And Lord, we always want to leave with you doing that. And so for that soul that may need you today, we pray that the heart would be opened. For Lord, the the person that needs to be encouraged today, I pray that you do that. And whatever the need may be, that only you know that you would meet it perfectly. Thank you, Father, for the joy of being a part of your church and a part of your kingdom one day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone stand, please. God said his Yeah.
Close this, sir. Heavenly Father, you are.